I think that'll put us at a strategic disadvantage. And I think we do need to come together with other countries with shared values and think about how tech can be used to export kind of small L liberal values to the world. It is the week of June 21st, and welcome to episode 85 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Zach Graves, NSI Visiting Fellow, Head of Policy at the Lincoln Network, and recent author of NSI Law and Policy paper entitled Understanding the Tech Clash, Implications of U.S. Innovation Policy. Zach, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So, what is Tech Lash? Yeah, so the, the Tech Lash is a term that came out of a 2013 Economist article, uh, sort of a portmanteau of technology and backlash. And so, you know, really this, this phenomenon describes people's growing anxiety about the impact of technology on society. Uh, it usually describes the four or maybe five big technology companies. These are often referred to by acronyms like uh, GAFA or GAFAM or FANG. Uh, usually the, the big four that it includes are Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. Sometimes Microsoft is thrown in there. Uh, and sometimes it also includes other technology companies that people are mad at for Republicans. This can include Twitter, even though its market cap isn't anywhere near Apple or Microsoft's. Uh, and it can also include you know companies like in the gig economy space that people have grievances against for their impact on labor or other kinds of disruptions or uh, people in the national security space like Palantir, people worrying about their uh, collection of data or privacy invasions. So really, uh, there's sort of two two aspects to it. One is the sort of the the big companies and the other is the sort of the uh, ubiquity of technology in our lives and people's sort of anxieties with that. And that's translated both, uh, you know, in terms of the, the sort of public policy discourse in Washington, D.C. or in state capitals about what kinds of regulation is appropriate. I think people have, uh, you know, sentiment has shifted such that people are much more favorable to regulation or even breaking up large tech companies. And so I think that's going to have a really big impact across a number of different issues. And we've already seen that sort of shape the conversation on both sides of the aisle. We've seen the way people talk about technology companies has you know, changed a lot in the last five years. And this is generally the term we use to sort of describe that shift, even though it's sort of by nature a little bit imprecise. So, Zach, my idiosyncratic and totally subjective view is Democrats were really upset with big tech in 2016. Trump won. They, in part, blamed uh, ads on Facebook and the folks who paid for them. And then in 2020, of course, things go full circle. Democrats are a little uh, happier with big tech. Republicans are more upset. Trump's been banned from Twitter and I think also Facebook. There, and it seems like the conservatives are on the short end of the stick in terms of the decisions that some of these big companies are making. So if you, you kind of wash out those tidal forces, you know, going from one extreme to the other, 
is there is there beneath the surface there a larger trend among the American people of skepticism of big tech companies that isn't necessarily a partisan political thing? Yeah, so it's interesting looking at the data from polling over the last few years, how that's shaped out. I think uh, you know, there, there's one study we look at in, in the, the paper that looks back at sort of media sentiment going back way further uh, and shows a sort of steady neg you know, downward decline. I think if you look at public sentiment across a few different polls, you know, there's ones by, by Gallup and Pew and others show that both Republicans and Democrats' views are, are shifting downward, even at, even though they vary uh, depending on what time period you're looking at. So overall, downward for both. But you did see a bit of a spike for uh, Democrats around 2016 and their concerns around the Cambridge Analytica scandal and, you know, really reading between the lines, helping uh, elect Donald Trump and all of the bad things on social media. And then, you know, I think you're going to see a continued spike on the right following the deplatforming of Trump and the, the right-leaning social network parlor after uh, the, the January 6th uh, violence. And so you're, you're seeing a couple of different narratives that are different for, you know, one for a different set of grievances for people on the right, one for people on the left. The left tends to care more about you know economic power of big tech companies as well as all of the you know, various kinds of harms that social media companies in particular are, are perceived to amplify. Uh, that can be you know, everything from you know violent extremism to abuse and bullying and you know hate speech and you know a whole huge range of of different uh, uh, societal ills that are enabled or amplified by the social media platforms, according to this narrative. And then the right, really the predominant theme has been uh, free expression and the kind of perception of ideological bias from the big tech companies, the big social media platforms in particular, but not exclusively social media platforms. And, you know, the concern that particularly for high profile cases that the, they're not represented in the decision making and that there's a skew uh, against them. So that's really been, you know, I think how things have shaped up overall. But I think the takeaway is that even for even considering the sort of rises and falls, the overall trend for both has been uh, a downward towards more negative views of the industry and more interest in regulating them. This is at the same time, though, that I think. Uh, people are still overall very pro positive about individual companies, sort of products and services. People still like it's Prime Day today. I'm going to go buy some stuff on Prime Day and get some good deals. So I think most people feel that way as well, even as they have some, you know, anxiety about the the, the power of these companies. And I think that partly might just be a sort of a natural, you know, maturation process of the industry. Uh, you know, they're much more perceptible in our day-to-day uh, -day lives and purchasing habits than maybe 10 years ago. And, you know, it's not unreasonable that people are thinking about that more uh, in terms of their kind of impact on the world. So uh, I think we have to, you know, kind of put two of the, a couple of these different things in, in context that, you know, there's a bunch of different forces sort of contributing to this, uh, uh, you know, tech lash phenomenon. Zach, we're, we're talking during the week of, of June 21st, of course, and this week, the House Judiciary Committee is going to mark up five bills regarding the internet that are the result of their 
uh, over a year long investigation into uh, possible antitrust issues in the industry. Uh, so, th so it's kind of a good moment to be talking about about where Congress is. What's your what's your take on on these five bills? And are we are we looking at some possibly real concrete action taken by our policymakers? Yeah. So I mean, this was a really you know long, thorough investigation that began in the last Congress into competition in, in digital markets, led by the you know antitrust subcommittee and House Judiciary. Uh, you know, largely a very, you know, bipartisan effort. They had numerous hearings. They even brought in the CEOs of the, you know, big four uh, tech companies for one hearing. Uh, you know, they interviewed a lot of uh, uh, different expert stakeholders and did document requests and did the kind of work that Congress used to do a lot more of. It was, you know, it ended in, it resulted in a, you know, 450 some page uh, report from the, the majority uh, and a smaller kind of report from the minority, although there were some, you know, important areas of, of common ground between them. And, you know, I think this is, this is a really important thing for Congress to be doing uh, when it's particularly looking at, uh, you know, a sector of the economy that's, you know, literally all of the top biggest American companies. It could have a huge impact uh, on, on America's sort of innovation ecosystem and global competitiveness. And so I think they're right to, you know, take their time and be deliberate in trying to uh, understand the space. Unfortunately, uh, I think they're trying to rush uh, a bunch of their package of bills right now. Uh, the bills, uh, four out of five are targeted explicitly at four, maybe five of the big tech companies setting, uh, a defining criteria for covered platforms as having a you know 600 billion market cap and uh, you know 50 million U.S. monthly active users and that's really uh, a couple other criteria and that's really a pretty narrow uh, set although conceivably uh, because it's a little bit ambiguous down the road maybe that could wrap up companies that are close to that 600 billion mark like Tesla or like Visa so it's a little uh, it's interesting in that regard, but it really is uh, an extremely, I think, aggressive set of proposals that put hard restrictions and bans on what the platforms can do. Uh, as a more kind of market-oriented guy, I'm pretty skeptical of this approach. And I think this raises another point that why are all these, you know, why are we talking about Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple in the same context. They're in, you know, pretty different lines of business. Amazon mostly is competing with Walmart and Target and people in the retail space. Apple, uh, you know, mostly makes their money from devices and digital services, probably closer to Microsoft or Dell. And then Google and Facebook are in, you know, largely in the business of selling targeted digital advertising. So, I mean, you could see having uh, sector-specific regulation for digital ads, and Congress definitely should do a, a privacy bill at some point. But I'm concerned that, you know, we're kind of lumping these companies together in the same boat just because they're big and they do things on computers. And I don't know if that's a, a totally coherent way to, to be approaching this. So I have my specific gripes with some of the things the bills do too. But I think from a process perspective, 
you know, I'd have liked to see this go through more hearings on the details, uh, you know, maybe a subcommittee markup before a full committee markup. These days, a lot of these decisions are made by by leadership and it's a sort of uh, very politicized. And so you, you kind of get the politics of it. But I think when we're dealing with something this significant in terms of its sort of impact on the economy and on the innovation ecosystem, you know, for instance, it effectively bans these companies from doing mergers and acquisitions. I mean, that has huge implications for like the VC sector and the startup sector. And I think, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these companies want to potentially have the option of, of an exit through an acquisition. So I think you have to be careful here. And I'm not sure that they're doing all of the, the due diligence. And I'm worried that this debate from the beginning was a little bit more political than it was uh, grounded in hard policy. And we've seen this with you know, a lot in Congress in, in the last few decades with its just sort of you know, very, you know, excessively hands-off approach, not really able to get together to pass big bills where we need them. Uh, and then the, you know, the de facto governing uh, framework we get out of that is the, you know, extraterritorial reach of things the EU does, like the GDPR and soon the DMA, uh, or, you know, the extraterritorial reach of things that California does, like the CCPA. And so I think that's suboptimal. You know, we don't want a patchwork of laws. We don't want California setting the rules for uh, people like me in DC or elsewhere. And so Congress really does need to set up and figure out the right balance for these things. But, you know, I'm not sure that this is exactly the approach I would favor. There are some good ideas in it, though. I mean, I think there are one of the bills addresses uh, an area, uh, something called interoperability, which is how the uh, you know, platforms interoperate with each other, or the ability to take your, have data portability to take your data from one platform and easily move it to another, uh, lowering the switching costs and making, you know, uh, you more able to sort of vote with your feet. And I think that in principle is a really good idea um, and maybe some for future version of that bill I think could be good. It'd be interesting to see what the Senate does. But as it stands, you know, I think I'm not super bullish on it. I don't think while they have some Republican support on it right now on the package, you know, I don't think that will hold up very well. You already see the ranking member of the full committee uh, is, you know, pushing against it. Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, is, is whipping against it. And I think they're going to have an even harder time in the Senate where they have to get that 60-vote threshold. Out of the package, I think the, there's a bill that's the you know, Merger Filing Fee Modernization Act, which had pre-existed this, goes back to uh, an effort in the Senate in 2019. And it's already passed out of the Senate. Basically, what it does is it updates you know, merger filing fees, which is one of the big offsetting revenues for the DOJ antitrust division and Federal Trade Commission. And so I just basically give them more resources to do enforcement as opposed to sort of radically restructuring uh, kind of the regulatory framework and antitrust laws that they operate under. And I think this is, I'm more sympathetic to this approach. It doesn't cover everything, but um, I think that's relatively non-controversial uh, as one approach moving forward, there's another one that's a, a bill they're considering that's 
uh, empowers sort of state AGs to, you know, enforce antitrust more too. It's then, you know, could have legs. I think Senator Lee is on it as well as a co-sponsor on the Senate side. So, um, you know, things like that could move, but mostly I think the like most radical pieces of this proposal are probably dead on arrival, but it's possible that there'd be some watered down version that, you know, could move through both chambers. Um, but really it comes down to, you know, even though both Republicans and Democrats are critical of big tech, you know, their their grievances, their philosophy of government are very different. And so, you know, for Republicans, I don't think this, other than the interoperability piece, really gets at the sort of speech concerns. And, you know, you may get a few who just want to be punitive, but I don't think that's a governing philosophy that's really, you know, broadly appealing to, to conservatives. Zach, there is this phenomenon of uh, libertarians, and, and maybe they're more on the right than the left, who seem to be willing to sacrifice some of the freedoms of big business in favor of more government regulation. In other words, they think uh, the power centers have gotten so great in some of these internet companies that it's time for the government to step in and set limits and define behaviors and that kind of thing. It seems very counterintuitive uh, for, for libertarians to be doing that. What's your, what's kind of your explanation for why some folks that you might expect to be a little more tolerant of behavior that's maybe not perfect by some companies now being willing to kind of assume that kind of big government role of, hey, we need to tamp down on this because it's just not good anymore. Yeah, I mean, a few points on that. I mean, one, I think like libertarians, you know, love nothing more than disagreeing with other libertarians. So on some big pieces of this debate, you have the uh, Ron Paul and Mises Institute crowd saying we should just abolish Section 230, which is one of the key governing statutes related to, uh, you know, liability shield for user generated content. And, you know, we should just revoke this because it's a carve out for a specific industry. And, you know, the common law should handle this as sort of the you know, one libertarian argument. And then you have people at like the Cato Institute or the Charles Koch groups sort of saying, no, we have to defend this and we have to take a pretty hard line in defending this. And so I think it depends, you know, where, where you kind of go, but how far you go back to first principles, how you're thinking about this. I would sort of argue that the platforms don't exist in a vacuum. There's a number of, you know, laws that have and that have created incentives that have you know, helped make them big, and you know, are keeping them there. And laws that have come up in place since they became big. You know, Facebook got big in part because it was able to scrape a lot of data from users, and it's also shown that it's willing to use laws like the CFAA to shut down people who are trying to scrape their platform and create interoperating. Zach, tell us what the CFAA is. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Sorry for the jargon. Yeah. Uh, One of these laws that that came up, I believe, in the 90s, and there are others like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and Section 230 also came out of the 96 Telecom Act. So there's a bunch of these laws, and then there's a phase where courts interpreted them in different ways. And, you know, often the, the effect of this is, you know, some of the tools that the you know, companies use to get big are, you know, no longer available to and something they'll even use, uh, uh, you know, against competitors uh, in, a, in an anti-competitive way. 
so I mean, there's this saying that that uh, Cory Doctorow at EFF says that every pirate wants to become an admiral, and I think you see that effect a little bit with some of the companies. You know, Steve Jobs used to hang out with Steve Wozniak and and hack phone systems, and Apple's also turned out to be one of the most aggressive uh, companies pushing against jailbreaking at the copyright office and using some of these laws to enforce against people that want to tinker with their products. And so, uh, again, you know, we're not operating in a total regulatory vacuum. Tech is probably headed towards being some kind of a regulated industry. So really the conversation is probably more appropriate to, you know, what kind of regulation is appropriate, what won't have bad unintended consequences for the, you know, next trillion dollar American tech company that comes around. We don't want to create a situation where we're creating a moat around them through the process of regulating them. And I think that's a real risk um, and something that particularly when the you know, conversation in Congress is you know, uh, driven by trade groups representing sort of the bigger companies and you know, the smaller and medium sized ones are, are less present in those debates. And so I think you know, a Facebook could live with a lot more compliance costs or hiring, you know, tens of thousands of people and, you know, a, a moderation center in India to handle their, their legal obligations, which would create a huge barrier to uh, potentially a competitor coming in. And so I think we have to be really careful about that as we're having this, you know, kind of policy conversation. But I think we're also not in a space where a pure kind of libertarian, you know, internet exceptionalism is going to be the rule. I think that the, you know, we're seeing, you know, just because of the geopolitical environment we're in for tech, you know, we have to have some kind of government role or, or else we'll be just catering to what the EU says, right? So, or what, uh, you know, uh, getting out competed by uh, uh, Chinese apps that we have less visibility in, which raises a whole other set of national security and privacy concerns. and. You know, so I think we need some government role. I think it should be a role that's relatively light touch and prioritizes uh, competition and innovation. But I don't think this is a hands-off moment for Congress. Um, and it's actually better for industry if they come in and set ground rules for, for privacy and for cybersecurity and for other things, because otherwise California will do it, the EU will do it. So. Zach, let's let's talk a little bit about Section 230, which you which you mentioned earlier. Section 230 is the part of the Communications Act uh, that protects uh, internet providers uh, from the liability that might be associated with content put onto the platform by their users, right? And so it it kind of opens up the possibility that anyone could post almost anything on certain of these platforms, and that platform won't be liable for whatever damage may be caused by that. The President Trump tried to repeal Section 230. He did it in kind of a weird way last year where he he vetoed the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, because it didn't have the repeal in it. And uh, Congress responded immediately by um, overturning his veto and making the NDAA law anyway. So what's the... He vetoed the one, the one bill that has overwhelming bipartisan support every year that Congress is guaranteed to do, probably not the legislative strategy I would have chosen. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, it's possible that he didn't get great advice there at the very end of the term. You know, before that, it seemed like everything was going pretty well. But there at the end, he seems to have made, no, I'm, I'm kind of joking. Uh, but in any event, what's the, pulling, pulling that out, what's the, what's the status of, of thinking by serious policymakers on Section 230 right now? Yeah, so the conversation, as you alluded to, has been like super politicized. Um, you know, the, the left wants to get at this largely to address all of the bad things that they see happening on social platforms. And they kind of want to deputize the platforms through a liability mechanism to make them more harsh sort of enforcers against some of this kinds of content. In that regard, there's also some overlap with the more hawkish national security minded people on the right, like Senator Lindsey Graham uh, has done some bills on, related to this. Uh, you know, they really want to help, you know, encourage platforms to push off the terrorist content and things like that. Right. So and there, there are, in fact, lots of bad things that happen on social platforms. Content moderation is an inherently very difficult thing to do and get right. It's been something that they've had you know, a pretty hard time creating algorithms to handle. Uh, and, you know, earlier in the Facebook history, you know, they, they run into all kinds of problems with this and they've run into problems internationally. You know, in Myanmar, they had their system exploited to, you know, promote an ethnic cleansing by the, the regime in power there. There's and all kinds of things, you know, in Hong Kong during the pro-democracy protests, social media platforms were, uh, you know, exploited by, uh, you know, China like state-backed disinformation campaigns. So it's a tricky thing, and particularly when you get into sort of the some of the foreign uh, use cases, it can be really hard. Particularly as companies are trying to build their business in some of these countries, often hiring people from the you know ruling party uh, in their government affairs offices. Uh, so it creates a kind of incentive to look away from bad behavior sometimes. So. Going back to 230, uh, you know, I think the conservatives have seen this as a sort of a mechanism to address their concerns about, uh, you know, anti-conservative bias from the platforms that they see. Trump was really instrumental in sort of defining that narrative. I think it existed a little bit before him. I think maybe Ted Cruz uh, started talking about that maybe in 2015. Um, but Trump is really the one who sort of defined that uh, and sort of disseminated against, you know, out to the, uh, uh, you know, conservative pundit class. And um, I think there's a theory where that's a maybe a good strategy if you're trying to, if you're, you know, if your side's in power and you're trying to put, exert some political pressure on the companies to uh, look the other way. And, you know, it's interesting if you read some of the history of how Facebook has uh, responded to uh, uh, some of the, the, the post-2016 election stuff. There's some interesting uh, looks at how they maybe tried to kind of work the refs and, and you know, shape policy through some political pressure. And now when the Democrats are in power, I think you probably see a little bit of that coming from the other side as well. I mean, the companies ultimately care about their uh, bottom line and they're, you know, to some extent have to be receptive to where policymakers are. So with respect to this narrative, I think it maybe makes sense from a kind of political perspective, but as a policy matter, I think it would probably do the opposite of what conservatives are, are saying it would do. I think you run into some pretty hard First Amendment issues with what you can tell platforms they can and can't do. And I think the effect of 
revoking Section 230, as Trump said, would create a regime which is much more hostile to speech and educations on, on social platforms, where platforms have an incentive to just take, you know, take it down. Uh, and, you know, if you compare, you know, probably what would emerge out of that is a, you know, a regulatory regime that looks more like the sort of notice and takedown system we have for copyright, where there I think, arguably effects that are much more kind of anti-free speech than, than pro-free speech. Um, so I don't think it's the right mechanism to get at what conservatives want to get at. I think maybe they had a theory that it was a good threat at one point, but I think they bought their own talking points a little bit, took it a little too far. Uh, I don't think it's really the right mechanism. Um, and I think we can also argue about how how real are the, the sort of bias concerns and how do they you know work in practice is another kind of interesting conversation. And I tend to think there's something there, but like, you know, it's also way overplayed and and you know, there's a sort of narrative that that Tim Cook and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos get together behind the table and they say, how do we silence conservatives this week? You know, ha ha ha. And I don't think that's really right. I think it's closer to reality is that the companies, you know, largely exist in the West Coast, which is much more left leaning, the engineering class that comes out of university that they're even more left-leaning. And so the what you get is the sort of pressures that companies are under to do things in high-profile cases tend to be more from the left than they tend to be from the right. You see some you know, kind of left activist groups doing organizing among employees to do different things. And so I think that creates a sort of a difference of pressure um, that can shape outcomes in a way that's more left-leaning. But I think this kind of conspiracy narrative gets a little too far uh, ahead of itself. So, and I also don't know that that's something you need a, a dramatic government intervention to address either, but I think people disagree on that. Um, so as far as where the discourse is on 230, I think my view is not to be kind of absolutist about it. I think there are, uh, you know, cases where reformists have, you know, compellingly argued that the courts have interpreted it too far and that there are places on the margins where it may be, you know, reasonable to uh, rein it in. But I'm not sure Congress is at a place where it can have a substantive, deliberative conversation uh, about the law. It's both sides are just, you know, incredibly politicized. They ultimately want different things out of reforming it. Um, I've suggested that, you know, Congress should kind of create a congressional commission to uh, go deeper on it and normalize the discourse, you know, normalize the debate a little bit, get into the details a bit, um, and then make recommendations that could, you know, go towards a reform vehicle. But you know, my bias would be to do nothing uh, rather than to have a, you know, a bill that, you know, is as politicized as, as the conversation is right now. Zach, in your paper, you call for uh, increased capability and technical expertise of uh, staff in, on the Hill, in Congress, and also in the executive branch. Are, are you worried? Are you worried at all that if we had a a more robust and uh, competent and energetic government that 
it might lead directly to, you know, kind of greater regulation of the industry and, and perhaps, as you, as you so well described it earlier, an ossification around these larger companies and a kind of a barrier to entry for, for smaller companies, upstarts and, and startups and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there, there absolutely is a risk that Congress, you know, a more capable, more functional Congress does more on the margins that, you know, me as a market oriented person doesn't necessarily like. Um, but the, you know, alternative, I think, is, is untenable and, and worse. And the alternative is, one, I mean, as it sets, you know, you, you have a reasonable risk of Congress passing something that's catastrophically bad, like the set of House bills as is, if enacted, if we had a little bit more of a you know, Democratic majority in both chambers, we might actually get that, or if they got rid of the filibuster next go around, you know, that's something that could plausibly become law and it could really shoot our economy in the foot and have all kinds of bad consequences, I think. Um, so I think when you have more, more staff, more technically competent, uh, objective analysis, as objective as one can get, you know, more resources for the congressional support agencies, like CRS and JO and also the National Academies, uh, and also committees that are more better staffed. Committees used to be, they're about 40% smaller than they were in the early 90s. You know, there was a big decline from the sort of committee era of Congress up to the 1970s and until today, where things are much more, you know, done in leadership offices and they have fewer hearings and fewer big, long reports, like, you know, to their credit, the House Judiciary Committee you know, did and went through that process. But, you know, it's a, it's a muscle that they need to flex more uh, and having more staff resources would do that. And otherwise, I think, you know, that often gets delegated to executive agencies, which may or may not do things that conservatives like. I think one of the problems with the House Judiciary package of bills is it puts a lot of burden on agencies like FTC and DOJ to work out a lot of the hard details that I think Congress you know, really, if you have a kind of Article One uh, view of Congress's role, that they're the first branch, that they need to be the you know direct point of interface between the people who elect them and making decisions about trade-offs, because regulations you know inherently have significant trade-offs to them, and there's no way around that. And so they need to have the expertise to know what those trade-offs are, and to you know be in a place to make decisions about them rather than just blaming. Uh, what the agencies do. And so that's why I would say it's worth the, it's worth the risk that they do a little bit more on the margins, uh, you know, trading off for them, not doing catastrophically bad things and also standing up to, you know, regulation from, from the States and from uh, the Europeans. And so uh, I think that's, you know, something that is going to produce more kind of conservative outcomes in the long run, even though it's sort of counterintuitive that you're putting more, more money in government to, to have a sort of something that looks like a technocratic decision-making body, but it's not really technocratic in the sense that like a, you know, an agency bureaucracy is because that advice exists. The expertise there exists to serve people who are elected and you can throw the bums out if you don't like them. And that's completely different from the Federal Trade Commission. All right, last question from me, Zach, and then I'm going to let Grant ask you a smart question. Uh, the, the right to petition your government, of course, is guaranteed in the Constitution, uh, in the Bill of Rights. But in your paper, you call for 
more disclosure of lobbying and advocacy efforts? Are you at all worried that this limitation on a constitutional right could actually benefit the bigger players who would be able to pay for that kind of disclosure vis-a-vis the smaller players who would have a little more trouble getting over that hurdle? I'd be curious what you mean about the ability to pay between big and small. Um, But first, I'll, I'll respond that, I mean, we already have a lot of transparency disclosure regimes in place. You know, we have the Lobbying Disclosure Act, we have FARA, we have uh, truth and testimony forms and, you know, rules that are sort of specific to each chamber of Congress or that the, you know, executive branch sets for lobbying senior officials. We have, uh, you know, rules like FACA, we have, you know, all kinds of things that have some level of transparency. So I think transparency can be perfectly consistent with a constitutional view of of government. I think really what we're talking about is, you know, marginal tweaks to make the regime we already have kind of apply more consistently and be more even. And I think particularly that could have a beneficial effect on the, you know, discourse around tech, because you see a lot of these conversations getting hijacked by, you know, PR and lobbying campaigns and sort of think tanks that are taking money from people and that when it comes to writing the kind of details of policy, that there's a lot of opportunity for capture here. And I think conservatives should generally be uh, looking for ways to resist regulatory capture by certain industries. And I think having a little transparency is a, you know, a reasonable trade-off for that. I think you don't want to go so far as to you know, get into kind of individual political donors and all of the things around that. But when you're talking about you know, very large corporations spending more money than anyone else on lobbying uh, and, you know, getting them to add a little more detail about what they're spending on, I think is uh, within reason. Fair enough. Uh, Grant, last question. Zach, thanks so much for uh, sharing all your your thoughts on this. I just want to zoom out a bit because tech lash and the issues between technology and populations isn't just an issue here in the U.S., Uh, You know, the EU has done a variety of things on privacy, has been pushing back against Google, Apple, and others on taxes. Australia has been doing some things at the edges of social media and uh, traditional media. And places like Thailand have created, you know, uh, rules around speech online that could be seen as throttling for most companies. Do you think that you know, these various tech lashes are going to lead to a broken up or balkanized internet? Or do you think if the US and EU come together, we can really perpetuate a more Western view of a open and free internet? Yeah, it's a tricky question. I mean, obviously, the trend has been towards more balkanization. There's been a lot more you know, data, data localization laws, particularly in more authoritarian countries like Russia or China. Um, I'd like to see the you know the U.S. and the EU come together. I think the more pressing, most of the stuff we're talking about in this uh, you know tech lash debate, as I think Jamil put it in a podcast I was listening to the other day, is that uh, it's mostly small ball stuff. Like mostly it's marginal things that are blown out of proportion. The bigger issue is the sort of geopolitics of, of opposing China and its sort of state-run state-backed champions. And I think they pose some like really significant risks. And it's stuff that we need to be rethinking our, our institutions, uh, our kind of R&D investment strategy, our 
uh, and also our kind of rivalry with the EU that's been there for a while and they have a kind of a protectionist interest in going after the um, American companies. I think in many ways, the sort of house package of bills from uh, on antitrust are largely kind of analogs to the you know, EU proposals and their approach to governing. I think that that's probably not the right path forward here and that we need to recognize there, there, there is a need for some regulations and some interventions here and there, but I don't think we need to be so drastic as to breaking up the companies or severely restricting their economic activity. I think that'll put us at a, a strategic disadvantage. And I think we do need to come together with other countries with shared values and think about how tech can be used to you know, export kind of small L liberal values to the world, which is, I think, how we you know, really largely saw it uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, when we're coming in to do business in a country like China, we see the, you know, the internet as a force for good and a force for liberalization. I don't know that that argument is plausible anymore. We maybe need to rethink that a little bit, um, particularly given the leverage that, you know, companies like China have over American companies like Microsoft or, or Apple. Uh, and there is a, some interesting reporting on that recently with Sensor and Microsoft under a lot of pressure to censor LinkedIn and censoring kind of tank man images on the Tiananmen Square anniversary for users in, in the US. I think it was accidental, but it shows that the kind of pressure they're under uh, or China, which or, or sort of for Apple, which uh, has been forced to store, you know, kind of iCloud data for Chinese, mainland China users on state-owned telecom servers and maybe under kind of diff different technical standards, different hardware security modules uh, that could have potential for kind of technical access from the government. And so I think we have to be really careful as the tech goes global that it continues to sort of push American values rather than sort of balkanize or sort of even import uh, the values and processes of more kind of illiberal places. Zach, are we able to do that without really like changing the profit incentive for companies like, you know, Google, Apple, Microsoft, because of just how lucrative the Chinese market can be for these players? Yeah, I think Apple is making $60 billion a year in, in mainland. Um, others want to kind of get into it. Uh, you know, it's a huge temptation. And, you know, you see other sectors that China is not afraid of using its leverage, right? And in the tech context, that can mean, uh, you know, exposing dissidents or, uh, you know, the communications of U.S. You know, users, whether they're doing missionary work or other kind of human rights work. Uh, you know, you... You know, also see this in, in the context of, you know, shaping the movie industry, for instance, right? And how, how Chinese characters or China is portrayed in, in movies, you know, from companies like Disney. Even the media industry has a lot of business dealings. In, in China, you have the NBA famously got into its sort of controversy over, uh, uh, I think, Hong Kong and some other various incidents. So... Uh, this is a real problem. This is a problem that, uh, you know, we need a more muscular foreign policy uh, uh, from the White House. We need probably some kind of 
coherent policy framework from Congress, and that's something that probably just isn't hands off, right? Right. Zach, this was fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.